Section four of the Queen of Hearts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary J. The Queen of Hearts by Wilkie Collins. Chapter three. Our Queen of Hearts. The chase stopped in front of us, and before we had recovered from our bewilderment, the gardener had opened the door and let down the steps. A bright, laughing face, prettily framed round by a black veil, passed over the head and tied under the chin. A travelling dress of a nankeen colour, studded with blue buttons and trimmed with white braid, a light brown cloak over it, little neatly gloved hands, which seized in an instant on one of mine, and on one of Owen's, two dark blue eyes, which seemed to look us both through and through in a moment, a clear, full, merrily confident voice, a look and manner gaily and gracefully self-possessed, such were the characteristics of our fair guest which first struck me at the moment when she left the post-chaise and possessed herself of my hand don't begin by scolding me she said before i could utter a word of welcome there will be time enough for that in the course of the next six weeks i beg pardon with all possible humility for the offence of coming ten days before my time don't ask me to account for it please if you do i shall be obliged to confess the truth my dear sir the fact is this is an act of impulse she paused and looked us both in the face with a bright confidence in her own flow of nonsense that was perfectly irresistible. "'I must tell you all about it,' she ran on, leading the way to the bench and inviting us, by a little mock gesture of supplication, to seat ourselves on either side of her. "'I feel so guilty till I've told you. Dear me, how nice this is! Here I am quite at home already. Isn't it odd? Well, and how do you think it happened? The morning before yesterday, Matilda—there is Matilda picking up my bonnet from the bottom of that remarkably musty carriage— "'Matilda came and woke me as usual, and I hadn't an idea in my head, I assure you, till she began to brush my hair. Can you account for it? I can't. But she seemed, somehow, to brush a sudden fancy for coming here into my head. When I went down to breakfast, I said to my aunt, "'Darling, I have an irresistible impulse to go to Wales at once, instead of waiting till the twentieth. She made all the necessary objections, poor dear, and my impulse got stronger and stronger with every one of them. I'm quite certain,' I said. "'I shall never go at all if I don't go now.' "'In that case,' says my aunt, "'ring the bell and have your trunks packed. "'Your whole future depends upon your going, "'and you terrify me so inexpressibly "'that I shall be glad to get rid of you. "'You may not think it to look at her, "'but Matilda is a treasure, "'and in three hours more I was on the Great Western Railway. "'I have not the least idea how I got here, "'except that the men helped me everywhere. "'They are always such delightful creatures. "'I've been casting myself and my maid and my trunks "'on their tender mercies at every point in the journey, "'and their polite attentions exceed all belief.' I slept at your horrid little country town last night, and the night before I missed a steamer or a train, I forget which, and slept at Bristol, and that's how I got here. And now I am here, I ought to give my guardian a kiss, oughtn't I? Shall I call you Papa? I think I will. And shall I call you Uncle, sir, and give you a kiss, too? We shall come to it sooner or later, shan't we? And we may as well begin at once, I suppose. Her fresh young lips touched my old withered cheek first, and then Owen's, a soft momentary shadow of tenderness that was very pretty and becoming, passing quickly over the sunshine and gaiety of her face as she saluted us. The next moment she was on her feet again, inquiring who the wonderful man was who built the Glen Tower, and wanting to go all over it immediately from top to bottom. As we took her into the house I made the necessary apologies for the miserable condition of the lean-to, and assured her that, ten days later, she would have found it perfectly ready to receive her. She whisked into the rooms, looked all round them, whisked out again, declared she had come to live in the old tower, and not in any modern addition to it, and flatly declined to inhabit the lean-to on any terms whatever. I opened my lips to state certain objections, but she slipped away in an instant and made straight for the tower staircase. 
"'Who lives here?' she asked, calling down to us eagerly from the first-floor landing. "'I do,' said Owen. "'But if he would like me to move out—' She was away up the second flight before he could say any more. The next sound we heard as we slowly followed her was a peremptory drumming against the room door of the second story. "'Anybody here?' we heard her ask through the door. I called up to her that, under ordinary circumstances, I was there, but that, like Owen, I should be happy to move out. My polite offer was cut short, as my brother's had been. We heard more drumming at the door of the third story. There were two rooms here also, one perfectly empty, the other stocked with odds and ends of dismal old-fashioned furniture for which we had no use, and grimly ornamented by a life-size basket figure supporting a complete suit of armor in a sadly rusty condition. When Owen and I got to the third-floor landing, the door was open. Miss Jessie had taken possession of the rooms, and we found her on a chair, dusting the man in armor with her cambric pocket-handkerchief. "'I shall live here,' she said, looking round at us briskly over her shoulder. We both remonstrated, but it was quite in vain. She told us that she had an impulse to live with the man in armor, and that she would have her way or go back immediately in the post-chaise, which we pleased. Finding it impossible to move her, we bargained that she should, at least, allow the new bed, and the rest of the comfortable furniture in the lean-to to be moved up into the empty room for her sleeping accommodation. She consented to this condition, protesting, however, to the last against being compelled to sleep in a bed because it was a modern conventionality, out of all harmony with her place of residence and her friend in armor. Fortunately for the repose of Morgan, who, under other circumstances, would have discovered on the very first day that his airy retreat was by no means high enough to place him out of Jessie's reach, the idea of settling herself instantly in her new habitation excluded every other idea from the mind of our fair guest. She pinned up the nankeen-colored traveling dress and festoons all round her on the spot, informed us that we were now about to make acquaintance with her in the new character of a woman of business, and darted downstairs in mad high spirits, screaming for Matilda and the trunks like a child for a set of new toys. The wholesome protest of nature against the artificial restraints of modern life expressed itself in all that she said and in all that she did. She had never known what it was to be happy before, because she had never been allowed until now to do anything for herself. She was down on her knees at one moment, blowing the fire, and telling us that she felt like Cinderella. She was up on a table the next, attacking the cobwebs with a long broom, and wishing she had been born a housemaid. As for my unfortunate friend, the upholsterer, he was leveled to the ranks at the first effort he made to assume the command of the domestic forces in the furniture department. She laughed at him, pushed him about, disputed all his conclusions, altered all his arrangements, and ended by ordering half his bedroom furniture to be taken back again, for the one unanswerable reason that she meant to do without it. As evening approached, the scene presented by the two rooms became eccentric to a pitch of absurdity which is quite indescribable. The grim ancient walls of the bedroom had the liveliest modern dressing-gowns and morning wrappers hanging all about them. The man in armor had a collection of smart little boots and shoes dangling by laces and ribbons round his iron legs. A worm-eaten, steel-clasped casket, dragged out of a corner, frowned on the upholsterer's brand-new toilet-table, and held a miscellaneous assortment of combs, hairpins, and brushes. Here stood a gloomy antique chair, the patriarch of its tribe, whose arms of blackened oak embraced a pair of pert, new-deal bonnet-boxes, not a fortnight old. There, thrown down lightly on a rugged tapestry table-cover, the long labor of centuries past lay the brief delicate work of a week ago in the shape of silk and muslin dresses turned inside out. In the midst of all these confusions and contradictions, Miss Jessie ranged to and fro, the active center of the whole scene of disorder, now singing at the top of her voice, and now declaring in her light-hearted way that one of us must make up his mind to marry her immediately, as she was determined to settle for the rest of her life at the Glen Tower. She followed up on that announcement, when we met at dinner, by inquiring if we quite understood by this time that she had left her company manners in London, 
and that she meant to govern us all at her absolute will and pleasure throughout the whole period of her stay having thus provided at the outset for the due recognition of her authority by the household generally and individually having briskly planned out all her own forthcoming occupations and amusements over the wine and fruit dessert and having positively settled between her first and second cups of tea where our connection with them was to begin and where it was to end she had actually succeeded when the time came to separate for the night in setting us as much at our ease and in making herself as completely a necessary part of our household as if she had lived among us for years and years past such was our first day's experience of the formidable guest whose anticipated visit had so sorely and so absurdly discomposed us all i could hardly believe that i had actually wasted hours of precious time in worrying myself and everybody else in the house about the best means of laboriously entertaining a lively high-spirited girl who was perfectly capable without an effort on her part or on ours of entertaining herself having upset every one of our calculations on the first day of her arrival she next falsified all our predictions before she had been with us a week instead of fracturing her skull with the pony as morgan had prophesied she sat the sturdy sure-footed mischievous little brute as if she were part and parcel of himself with an old waterproof cloak of mine on her shoulders with a broad flapped spanish hat of owens on her head with the wild imp of a welsh boy following her as guide and groom on a barebacked pony and with one of the largest and ugliest cur dogs in england which she had picked up lost and starved by the wayside barking at her heels she scoured the country in all directions and came back to dinner as she herself expressed it with the manners of an amazon the complexion of a dairymaid and the appetite of a wolf on days when incessant rain kept her indoors she amused herself with a new freak making friends everywhere as became the queen of hearts she even ingratiated herself with the sour old housekeeper who had predicted so obstinately that she was certain to run away to the amazement of everybody in the house she spent hours in the kitchen learning to make puddings and pies and trying all sorts of recipes with varying success from an antiquated cookery book which she had discovered at the back of my bookshelves at other times when i expected her to be upstairs languidly examining her finery and idly polishing her trinkets i heard her in the stables feeding the rabbits and talking to the raven or found her in the conservatory fumigating the plants and half suffocating the gardener who was trying to moderate her enthusiasm in the production of smoke instead of finding amusement as we had expected in owen's studio she puckered up her pretty face in grimaces of disgust at the smell of paint in the room and declared that the horrors of the earthquake at lisbon made her feel hysterical instead of showing a total want of interest in my business occupations on the estate she destroyed my dignity as steward by joining me in my rounds on her pony with her vagabond retinue at her heels instead of devouring the novels i had ordered for her she left them in the box and put her feet on it when she felt sleepy after a hard day's riding instead of practising for hours every evening at the piano which i had hired with such a firm conviction of her using it she showed us tricks on the cards taught us new games initiated us into the mystics of dominoes challenged us with riddles and even attempted to stimulate us into acting charades in short tried every evening amusement in the whole category except the amusement of music every new aspect of her character was a new surprise to us and every fresh occupation that she chose was a fresh contradiction to our previous expectations the value of experience as a guide is unquestionable in many of the most important affairs of life but speaking for myself personally i never understood the utter futility of it where woman is concerned until i was brought into habits of daily communication with our fair guest in her domestic relations with ourselves she showed that exquisite nicety of discrimination in studying our characters habits and tastes which comes by instinct with women in which even the longest practice rarely teaches in similar perfection to men she saw at a glance all the underlying tenderness and generosity concealed beneath owen's external shyness irresolution and occasional reserve and from first to last even in her gayest moments 
there was always a certain quietly implied consideration, an easy, graceful, delicate deference, in her manner toward my eldest brother, which won upon me and upon him every hour in the day. With me she was freer in her talk, quicker in her actions, readier and bolder, in all the thousand little familiarities of our daily intercourse. When we met in the morning she always took Owen's hand and waited till he kissed her on the forehead. In my case she put both her hands on my shoulders, raised herself on tiptoe, and saluted me briskly on both cheeks in the foreign way. She never differed in opinion with Owen without propitiating him first by some little artful compliment in the way of excuse. She argued boldly with me on every subject under the sun, law and politics included, and, when I got the better of her, never hesitated to stop me by putting her hand on my lips, or by dragging me out into the garden in the middle of a sentence. As for Morgan, she abandoned all restraint in his case on the second day of her sojourn among us. She had asked after him as soon as she was settled in her two rooms on the third story, had insisted on knowing why he lived at the top of the tower, and why he had not appeared to welcome her at the door, had entrapped us into all sorts of damaging admissions, and had thereupon discovered the true state of the case in less than five minutes. From that time my unfortunate second brother became the victim of all that was mischievous and reckless in her disposition. She forced him downstairs by a series of maneuvers which rendered his refuge uninhabitable, and then pretended to fall violently in love with him. She slipped little pink three-cornered notes under his door, entreating him to make appointments with her, or tenderly inquiring how he would like to see her hair dressed at dinner on that day. She followed him into the garden, sometimes to ask for the privilege of smelling his tobacco smoke, sometimes to beg for a lock of his hair, or a fragment of his ragged old dressing-gown to put among her keepsakes. She sighed at him when he was in a passion, and put her handkerchief to her eyes when he was sulky. In short, she tormented Morgan whenever she could catch him with such ingenious and such relentless malice that he actually threatened to go back to London and pray once more in the unscrupulous character of a doctor on the credulity of mankind. Thus situated in her relations toward ourselves, and thus occupied by country diversions of her choosing, Miss Jessie passed her time at the Glen Tower, accepting now and then a dull hour in the long evenings, to her guardian's satisfaction, and, all things considered, not without pleasure to herself. Day followed day in calm and smooth succession, and five quiet weeks had elapsed out of the six during which her stay was to last, without any remarkable occurrence to distinguish them, when an event happened which personally affected me in a very serious manner, and which suddenly caused our handsome Queen of Hearts to become the object of my deepest anxiety in the present, and of my dearest hopes for the future. End of section 4, chapter 3